Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Today on The Breakdown, as the Senate hears evidence in the impeachment trial of former President Donald Trump, we're joined by someone who's been involved in every presidential impeachment going back to Richard Nixon. That would be San Jose Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. It will make clear that she wasn't in Congress at that time. We'll get to that. <laughs> that was in 1974. She helped write one article of impeachment against Richard Nixon. She was actually a law student at the time. And since getting elected to Congress in 1994, she's participated in three impeachments. So we'll be talking with her about the differences and similarities of all those impeachments. Uh, And Marisa, the House impeachment managers rested their opening arguments today. Uh, Pretty compelling, super compelling video. A lot of it uh, had not been seen before. Uh, Pretty harrowing to watch, I'd say. Whether it'll have any impact, uh, who knows? Right. Politically. I mean, I will say as somebody who obviously was, you know, riveted to my TV on January 6th and has really followed this um, Wednesday's testimony, including I mean, the video obviously was really moving and and terrifying, but they played some of the um, tape of, of the calls between police officers. And that was the moment that for me just it, it, it felt so raw and so terrifying and really emotional, you know, and I, and I think you saw members on both sides of the aisle, regardless of how they're going to vote, um, have some of that reaction, too, because this was so recent. And we I don't think we've really processed it totally as a nation. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, you know, kind of reminded me of the nine nine one one tapes, you know, when yeah. you are you're doing stories on that, whether it's wildfires or whatever, it's just always the most compelling, emotional, just the human emotion that comes through. We're going to come back to that when we talk to Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. But let's talk about uh, there's a Berkeley IGS poll out this week, yet another poll. Uh, and really the top line of that one was Diane Feinstein's approval rating is really underwater. 35% of California voters approving of the job she's doing, 45% disapproval, 20% say no opinion. That is the first time in her entire career that she's dipped that low and, and the first time she's ever been underwater like that with more people disapproving. Uh, disapproving of her, um, you know, it's 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 tough. A lot of people felt maybe she should not have run for re-election. Right. But, you know, on the other hand, uh, when women get to that point in their career, when they've climbed that ladder, you know, they, they want to make their own decisions, I think, you know, and uh, it's, you know. Like, like a man would almost. Like a man would, exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that this is... 
a, a sort of more um, substantive warning sign for Feinstein about, you know, I think there's been concerns within the caucus about her positions and, and how moderate she can be. And, and you know, there was obviously that hug with Lindsey Graham last year and, and other things around judiciary. But I think this does show um, that a lot of her own constituents have lost, you know, their support for her or their confidence in her. And it does make you wonder, I mean, just it, it's not as if she was elected that long ago. Really I know, that long no. Ago. I know she's going to be there. I think her term expires at the end of 2024. So I don't know, do the math. She'd be like 91, 92. Anyway, it's, uh, you know, and there was that New Yorker article as well that had a lot of blind quotes from colleagues and staffers about her memory loss. uh, And as you said, the shaky performance on the Judiciary Committee. And, you know, it made me think, frankly, about Barbara Boxer who stepped mm-hmm. down uh, at the end of 2016. She went out sort of on top, if you will. And is uh, not slowed down. And is not slowed down. She looks like ago. she's like maybe five years younger <laughs> now, living down there in Palm Springs. But, you know, you got to know when it's your time. And uh, uh, I just, I, it's just you getting the sense that Diane Feinstein maybe has overstayed that time. We'll, we'll see where that goes, whether she does step down early or not. Um, also, I mean, maybe no surprise here, but um, Alex Padilla recently appointed as a new U.S. senator, um, pretty high marks by by most Californians. Obviously, this is a blue state. Um, and then McCarthy and uh, Kevin McCarthy, minority leader, and Speaker Nancy Pelosi kind of have like, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I just find it interesting. Pelosi is so vilified outside of California. Um, you know, pretty pretty even favorable 48, unfavorable 44. Um, but Kevin McCarthy, only 30% favorable. So, yeah, uh, yeah. well, the question there, yeah, and the question I think was, you know, do you approve or disapprove of Pelosi's and McCarthy's stance toward Donald Trump? And it was uh, 61% approve of Pelosi's positions. Yeah, 30% approve of McCarthy, which is more or less a reflection of how the vote went in November. You know, mm-hmm. it was about 64-34 for Biden. So uh, not a huge surprise there. Um, should we talk real quick about Gavin Newsom? Uh, oh, boy, that he was on the vaccine listening tour <laughs> this week uh, in Fresno, San Diego, uh, L.A., uh, he's been was Oakland, in Oakland, and, yeah, and 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 partly to announce. I mean, I think what 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 strikes me about this week is how much. Uh, <laughs> how happy he must be to have a Democrat in the White House, right? You have the Biden administration working closely to help California open some more mass vaccination sites. Say that 10 times fast. Um, And and just, you know, this is, as we've talked about before, that along with school reopenings and businesses, I think is the crux of the sort of weakening political support for the governor. And so if he can turn that around, and I mean, Scott, we're seeing it in our lives every day. More people are getting vaccines, right? They are, but also people are very frustrated about schools not being reopened, and uh, he's going to have to, you know, be a part of that solution as yeah. well. Maybe this week, he said, he'll have uh, he'll be unveiling some details, but we'll have to wait and see. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we'll be joined by San Jose Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. 
the land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State, but we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. And, you know, as we thought about who to ask onto the show this week, right in the middle of Trump's second impeachment trial, we came up with the perfect guest. Zoe Lofgren represents parts of Silicon Valley in Congress, and she's been involved in every presidential impeachment going back to Richard Nixon. Congresswoman Lofgren, welcome to Political Breakdown. Thanks. I was not involved in the Andrew Johnson impeachment. <laughs> okay, well, that's good. And we should say, set the as, record as we, yeah, set the record straight there. That was after the Civil War. Um, and you were a very young law student in 1974, right. right? How did you get into that position? Well, I was, had been working for Congressman Don Edwards, my predecessor, uh, after I graduated from Stanford, I didn't have a job. I just went to Washington <clears throat> and I ended up talking myself into a, 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 an internship for him. And at the end of that, I was offered a job and I ended up working for him for some time. I worked in Washington and then um, I decided to go to law school. I only applied to one law school, University of Santa Clara which was like four blocks from his district office. <laughs> and so I worked, uh, I went to law school while I worked for him. And after my first year uh, in law school, um, Alan Parker, who was the then the uh, chief counsel for his subcommittee, uh, said I should come back and work on the bankruptcy bill uh, while everyone else worked on impeachment. So I went back to Washington to keep the bankruptcy bill on track. That lasted for like three weeks. And, you know, impeachment was like the vortex. It, it sucked everyone in. <laughs> well, and, that's where you uh, wanted to be anyway, right? Yeah. Well, you know, I was a law student. I mean, I you know, it wasn't like I was in charge of anything. Um, but it was really um, a very fascinating experience. And towards the end, uh, they were prepared to move forward and they didn't really have uh, all of the articles, or even a strategy completely done. And um, I ended up writing an article because John Conyers wanted to do an article on the Cambodia bombing, which was not going to pass. And probably, you know, I had concerns, honestly, about the Cambodia bombing, but it didn't fit in terms of an impeachment because the Congress knew about it. They funded it. It wasn't out. It, it was not it shouldn't have been offered. That level. And so I ended up writing it, I guess, because it wasn't going to pass. And uh, they gave it to me. <laughs> Good practice. Well, I mean, that's so interesting that you felt like they didn't have a real strategy, because at that point, I mean, he had been reelected. Watergate had been going on really for years. It looked good, though, didn't it? We pulled it together <laughs> yeah, at yeah, the end. <laughs> um, I'm curious, though, you talked about that that article that you didn't necessarily believe in it. Was that weird to be or, or is maybe that the best law school practice is to be arguing something that you're not sure you actually think has well, actually, that was 
that was congressional staff practice. I mean, I agreed with Don Edwards most of the time, but not 100%. I mean, you never can. And your job of the staff is to represent the person who is elected and that you work for. And if you want have it be your opinion, you run for Congress, right? Which ultimately I did. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, you have to be able to present the person that you're, you're working for. And um, the issue about impeachment is not whether or not you politically like what someone did. Right. It's whether it's a high crime and misdemeanor, which is re really whether the action undercuts the constitutional system of government. And when the legislature collaborates on a cause of action, knows about it, funds it, it's hard to argue whether you approve of it or not, that it really undercut the constitutional scheme. So you were in Congress for Bill Clinton's impeachment and then both, uh, of course, uh, Donald Trump's impeachments. And the, the first time he was impeached over that phone call with uh, the, the leader of Ukraine, of course, he was acquitted. And I'm wondering, do you feel the Democrats learned from that experience? Because it really, in the end, it didn't amount to much. It really didn't factor into the reelection campaign at all. Um, so what did Democrats take from that? Well, it wasn't done to be part of the of the campaign. It was done to be to but, stand but, up. But let me just clarify. So I mean, I mean that voters weren't talking about it. No one was asked about it by the you know in the debates that kind of thing. Correct. Um, well, you know, sometimes it, what we we saw, and I was late to the idea of doing impeachment. In fact, people were picketing my office that I should be for impeachment, and I hadn't seen really a locksure case of high crime and misdemeanor until the um, issue that came forward that we went forward on. And it was a complicated case. It really wasn't a complicated case, but in terms of evidence, it was because he tried to hide what he was doing. And I think in the end, we didn't, I don't think we had a big choice. You've got somebody who's really undercutting the whole constitutional scheme, engaging in um, that kind of misconduct. You have to do something. Mm -hmm. And I think the senators, I mean, a number of the senators told me privately that we had proven our case. They just weren't going to vote for it. Um, and, you know, they're the senators. I'm not. But I think their failure to take action really gave him the green light for what he did subsequently. And that really brought us to the second impeachment. Well, and on the second impeachment, I mean, I think the case being made by House managers includes both looking backward, you know, accountability for what occurred on January 6th and prior to that, but also looking forward for to prevent this from happening again. Um, and I just wonder, like, hearing you say that about your Republican colleagues, I mean, do you feel like, I don't know, is the, is, is the impeachment process even living up to what it was constitutionally intended for when it's become what appears to be such a partisan exercise in the sense of, you know, the idea that people say, you know, we're just not even going to consider voting for this on a procedural sort of level? Well, you know, in the entire history of the United States, no president has ever been removed by impeachment. So this is not a new thing. Right. Um, you know, one could think about whether the founders two thirds majority really made sense. If you read through the constitutional convention notes, it may be that the threshold they put in really didn't 
suit what they were trying to achieve. I mean, they didn't want a parliamentary system where a majority would throw out the chief executive uh, for policy disagreements. They wanted something, you know, uh, a protection against that. But a two-thirds majority is pretty tough. And uh, partisanship is not new uh, to us. I mean, this is something that has existed for a long time in the United States. I do think, though, that... Um, you know, it's not easy to oppose a president of your own party. I mean, when I saw the Nixon impeachment, of course, it's worth remembering he resigned before he wasn't impeached, it, it actually, got to right? yeah. Nixon resigned. Uh, but he resigned because members of his own party said, this is over. And it was because when it, it all came out, it was clear that it was just too much. I mean, he had corrupted the system and undercut the system of government. And not every Republican on the committee uh, was there, but a lot of them were. Yeah, well, it does make you wonder uh, what would happen if it was a secret ballot, just like juries do in criminal cases, if they didn't have to do it publicly. And I don't know if the Senate could change that, uh, if that's just a rule, or I don't think it's written in the Constitution, is it, that they have to do it publicly, but uh, that you might have a different outcome. You might, it's hard to know. Uh, I personally believe that the Republican Party would be better off if they were freed <laughs> from Mr. Trump. Um, but the base you know, is still with him. We need two strong parties to have competing visions in the country. That's good for the United States. Mm -hmm. But what we have now is kind of a cult and a party and kind of the remnants of a party. All right. Well, if you're just joining us, uh, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. And we're talking with Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. She represents the city of San Jose and places south like Gilroy and Morgan Hill. We want to ask about your... Uh, the, be your, the beginnings. You know, we always like to ask uh, our guests about their childhoods and how they got to where they are now. You were born and raised in the Bay Area in San Mateo. Right. Um, what was it like back then? Mo so different than it is today, right? Completely. Actually, I was born in San Mateo, but my parents moved to South Palo Alto when I was three years old. Yeah. So I actually grew up in South Palo Alto and a very different town than it is today. Um, my dad was a truck driver. My mother was a a cook at the Coverly High School cafeteria, and later she was a secretary. The block I grew up on in South Palo Alto was all blue collar. I don't think there was a single person who'd gone to college. Uh, everybody, I think everybody was a union member. It was like after World War II, all the GIs bought these little houses. I think it was a $9,000 house with the wow. GI bill and uh, raised, had kids and raised their families. And it was a great place. I mean, it was, I think, kind of difficult for the parents sometimes, but it was a great place to be a kid. And, um, you know, I, I uh, have very fond memories of my childhood and, and uh, the block I grew up on. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned it was kind of blue collar. Um, I'm curious, it seems like you went pretty headlong into politics at a pretty young age. Was Were politics something you all talked about at home? Were you yes. expected to go to college? Like, how? what was the vibe around that? My uh, parents, and especially my mother, were very political. Mm. Um, you know, they hadn't, they were high school graduates, but, you know, no one had gone to college. But my mother really believed, and my parents, my father too, but especially my mother, that the, the government belonged to her, right? Um, she was responsible for it. 
and we would walk precincts. She was a Democrat. And, uh, you know, some mothers would go to the March of Dimes. We did dollars for Democrats door to door. And we would go to the Democratic Club meetings and at dinner. Uh, you know, we would have dinner together every night and we would talk about, you know, the president and, you know, we would work on campaigns. I thought everybody did that. I, it was only <laughs> later that I found out not everybody in their dining room was talking about this. And mm. so... Um, did they expect you to go to college? I don't know. We, I, you know, how I went to college, Mrs. Helen Huntington, who just passed away recently, was a counselor at Gunn High School. And I remember she called me in and she said, you ought to be thinking about going to college. And I said, well, how am I going to do that? We don't have any money. And she said, well, don't worry about that. And I was getting pretty good grades, but she said, get the B's up to A's and, uh, the money will be there. And for some reason I believed her. So I got the B's to A's and the A's to A pluses. And uh, I got noticed that I had won a California state scholarship and I panicked because I hadn't applied for a California state scholarship, <laughs> but Mrs. Huntington had for me. Oh, and wow. uh, so wow. I ended up, I got into Stanford. I applied to two colleges, Stanford and Berkeley, because I didn't know where I didn't know the only two colleges I really knew about. And I got into both, but it was cheaper to go to Stanford because the scholarship didn't cover fees, only tuition. And so um, that's how I ended up doing that. That's great. And when did you start going by Zoe? Because you were given name as Susan, right? I was like nine, eight. Okay. And uh, so all my life. Um, where, where, did where did it come, it come from? Yeah. And why? Not, and, and how many people call you Zoe? Because I've heard you called Zoe incorrectly <laughs> so many times. Don't know me. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I, I don't even remember at this point. But it's, um, hmm. it's so long ago. It's well, great. it's stuck, obviously. Yeah, <laughs> it sure did. Yeah. So. Uh, Oh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Oh, no, well, no, go after law school, I was going to say, you, you, we want to talk about I mean, one of your like main policy errors is immigration. Um, right. and, I'm, and, and I'm curious how you came to that. Was that. Did that have anything to do with where you were going to law school and being in California, or was it just an area of law that interested you? You know, I think a, a number of things. I was very close to my father's father, uh, who was an immigrant from Sweden. We used to go over to, they lived in San Leandro, and we used to go over to their house for dinner like every Sunday. And I would just, as soon as we got to their house, I'd make a beeline for him, and we would talk until it was time to eat. And he would tell me, you know, about his life and about being an immigrant and about the old country. He, he loved America. He was very proud of being an American citizen. But I was very interested in, you know, you just pick up and go to another country, and it changed everything. Um, and then I guess I was interested just in the movements of people. I remember when I was, I think in sixth grade, I did a big, well, big for a sixth grader report on the movements of people in Africa. Why was it that, you know, this group moved here and what, you know, and, uh, when I worked for Edwards, I did immigration work for him and, uh, I've just always been interested in it, mm. you know, immigration, made this country. I mean, everybody here, except the Native Americans, their family came from someplace. Yep. And yep. Marisa and I it, both have immigrant, uh, very <laughs> yeah. close in our family. 
Yeah, I mean, some, for me, it's my grandparents. Sometimes it might be their great great grandparents, but everybody here yeah. came from someplace else, and it's what made the country. It made the country great, I think. So you are one of seven what are being called closers that Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, has designated. We didn't do that. That was Linda. <laughs> okay, Linda Sanchez, okay, from uh, Southern California. But nonetheless, you are one of seven who are sort of being char charged with shepherding through the House this uh, immigration reform bill that President Biden has sent over. How confident are you that something will really happen this time? Because we, as you know, well know, We've seen it. We've talked about it so many times in the yep. past uh, 20 years since Reagan, really. Uh, and it just hasn't happened. Well, you know, I don't know the answer. I'm willing to work on it. Linda Sanchez uh, is carrying the bill on the House side. Bob Menendez and Senator Menendez on the Senate side. Linda uh, is one of the few women who plays on the congressional baseball team. <laughs> and so she said, you know, when you when you come in, you bring in the picture you have closers. And that's what she that's why she chose. I thought you were going to say that might help her get the bill passed. But that <laughs> well, it could. you never know. Um, but, uh, you know, there are there are deep divisions in the country and in the Congress on the immigration. I would say the divisions in the Congress are bigger than the divisions in the country. Hmm. Uh, we just as I said earlier today, I had um, I chaired a meeting of the immigration subcommittee and then later a hearing of the immigration subcommittee. And Tom McClintock is the ranking member. And he has, you know, I mean, it wasn't like we were screaming at each other, but very different views than uh, I do. And every single Republican has a very negative view on uh, and said very negative things about immigration. So we'll see. We'll see what happens. We, we noticed that of those so-called closers, um, you are, everyone else is a woman of color. And, and a lot of them, I think, are newer to Congress. I'm just curious, like, how has the dynamic changed? And, and what's it like working with these often younger colleagues um, on these issues that you've been going to bat for for so long? Another baseball well, metaphor. I think, yeah. <laughs> I'm on the, yeah, yes, going about, well, that's a, a pitcher metaphor. It was what I was told, not a, uh, but the, um, you know, I chair the immigration subcommittee. I used to teach immigration law. I used to practice immigration law. So, you know, I'm there working on this. Um, Lucille Royball Allard is the uh, chair of the Homeland Security subcommittee and the appropriations committee. So she's played a key role on uh, you know immigration matters uh, in the Appropriations Committee. The other uh, participants have, have done different things, for example, um, on temporary protected status issues and the like. So everybody was there. Linda selected them um, mm -hmm. and for you know what they had done and hopefully what they could do. Um, some are younger, some are older. You talked about uh, growing up in South Palo Alto. I didn't know there was such a place. I've heard of East Palo Alto. <laughs> but, uh, well, but you know, it actually used to be unincorporated when I uh, first lived there, and then it became just part yeah. of Palo Alto. So, you know, when you think about immigration, I mean, obviously the, the, the peninsula, Silicon Valley, has been so shaped by immigration. How have you seen those changes as someone who's lived there your whole life? And the politics well, change, yeah. Very, very different. Well, for a while, I mean, growing up, we were Republican. I remember walking precincts to try and elect a Democrat to Congress year after year after year and failing year after year after year. 
um, that's no longer the case. I mean, it would be very difficult to draw a Republican congressional district in the Bay Area at this point. Even if you tried, I don't know how you would do it. Um, the demographics of the region have changed considerably. The little block I grew up on, I'm just trying to think there were a couple of Japanese American families, couple of Mexican-American families. There was an African-American family, but mainly it was white people, blue collar white people. Now, you know, there's no ethnic majority in Santa Clara County. Um, close to half of the people who live in Santa Clara County were born in another country. They're Americans by choice. So it's a very different place. And I think in many ways it's enriched us um, and I hear that from my constituents as well. Yeah. All right. We just have about a minute left, but we noticed when you first ran for Congress, you were barred from saying that you were a mother on your ballot designation. <laughs> and I'm just wondering, I think I still, I think you still can't do that, but you um, can, you can the law after that, you know, and people thought, well, I, that was some kind of, you know, calculated thing under Cal under California law. You can list, three words is who, what you are on a ballot description. And so I was sitting around my husband and the people helping on the campaign. They said, well, what do you do? What do you spend most of your time doing? <laughs> I said, well, okay, I'm a county supervisor. I'm a lawyer, but I don't practice law anymore. And I'm a mother. And I said, so I guess most of my time is spent being a county supervisor and being a mother. And uh, so that's what we put. And, and then and, the second- yeah, the, the Secretary, Secretary of State said, no, you can't do that. You can't do that. And um, people were outraged. But, you know, Tony Miller was the guy. He was, you know, running the place for uh, the elected official. And he's, he sends me a Mother's Day card everywhere. <laughs> That's so funny. To this day, huh? Yeah. Well, no one to wants to day. stand up and say they're against motherhood. Well, so right. Lachlan, I don't think it's gotten totally better for moms, but slightly better, maybe. Yeah. So, Larkin, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate thank it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right. Well, that does it for this edition of Political Breakdown, a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Katie McMurrin. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Tobin, Lindsay, Vinnie Tong, Erica Aguilar, and Jonathan Blakely. We'd love to know who you'd like to hear on the show in the weeks ahead. Tweet your suggestions. You can tweet them to me. I'm at mlagos. Or to me. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Send us some good ideas, all right? And we'll take it from there. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great weekend. Stay safe. All those things. Bye. Do you love learning about the San Francisco Bay Area? It's history, it's people, it's unique blend of cultures? Then you should check out The Bay Curious Book. I'm Katrina Schwartz, editor and producer on The Bay Curious Podcast, and I'm here to let you know that for the month of May, we've worked out a sweet deal for KQED podcast listeners. Right now, you can get The Bay Curious ebook for $1.99. That's right, $1.99. Just search for Bay Curious wherever you get your ebooks or find a link in our show notes. This offer does expire at the end of the month, though, so you'll want to act on it fast. Happy reading! Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond. 
with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.